Hi, my name's Zach. I'm 12 years old, and I host We the Children, the podcast where kids talk climate change. Like a lot of kids my age, when I think about the future, I can't help but wonder what kind of world will be waiting for us. Will polar bears still roam the Arctic? Will we still be able to see colorful coral reefs or build snowmen in the winter? I'd like to think so. That's why I'm trying to learn as much as I can about climate change science, stories, and solutions from some of the world's leading experts, and share what I learned with all of you. Together, we can decide what type of future we want for our planet. Subscribe to We the Children on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at wethechildrenpodcast.com. Remember, we, the children, have the power to make a difference. Before we get started, just a quick note for parents out there. This episode talks about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, which might not be suitable for younger ears and sensitive listeners. Now here's Nate with a few more messages. Before we start this episode, two quick things. First, a quick shout out to Me23 and FVGHUH for leaving reviews over an Apple podcast. Robots and Tesla cars are great ideas for future episodes of the show, so thanks for suggesting them. And if Elon Musk is listening, I'd love to have you as a guest. Second, I recorded two episodes of my other podcast, the show about politics and history, at the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas, which is the place where John F. Kennedy was shot in 1963. Before listening to this episode of The Show About Science, I'd recommend heading over to The Show About Politics and starting with those episodes. Okay, on with the show. Welcome everyone to another episode of The Show About Science. This is your host, Nate, and today we are going to be looking at the evidence behind the JFK assassination. And we're going to see if modern science can crack the case. I hope you're ready for it, because it's going to be a wild ride. All right, let's get this interview started. This is Mike. Hi, this is Nate. Hi, Nate. How are you? I'm good. It's always nice to start an interview off right on time. I really appreciate that. You're welcome. So let's jump right in. Sounds good. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, My official job title is a forensic scientist, and I specialize in shooting incident reconstruction. Uh, I've been in the business for quite a while. I kind of grew up in the field because my dad does what I do. So I got my start fairly young and did that work for quite a while as a trainee. Went and got a degree in college in chemistry and then got a job out here in Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico for a real crime lab doing hot scenes and uh, recent criminal activity type casework. And I've been doing that for about 20 plus years. And then I also have a private consulting company on the side that specializes in both training as well as case review and case investigation. So could you give me a definition of forensic science? Sure. That's a broad term. But if you take the different parts of it, each in their own, it's pretty easy to break down. Forensics is the application of science to the law and to legal proceedings. And that could be criminal proceedings or civil proceedings. But it's the use of physical evidence and factual things, tangible things that you can actually analyze, whether that be a gun, a drug, um, 
tire marks in a, in a car wreck. All of these things to reach scientific conclusions that then get incorporated into legal proceedings, whether that's a trial or whether it's a deposition or even a hearing. Uh, that's kind of the purpose. So it's the blending of science into the legal world. So um, over on my other podcast, this show about politics, I've been doing episodes on the Kennedy assassination, and I heard you've been working on the JFK case for a while now. Mm-hmm. And so um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. That case was kind of interesting in that it's been around, of course, for a long time. Of course, it happened in 1963. And... For my entire time that I can recall growing up and being in this field and working with my dad, neither of us really had any particular interest in delving into it because so many people had worked on it before. And there seemed to be a large group of people who already had their minds made up about what did or did not happen that day in Dallas. So neither of us had really considered getting into it. Anytime you talk to somebody they've already got a conspiracy theory or they're already just uh, uninterested in the case. So until the 50th anniversary rolled around, uh, both Luke and myself really hadn't considered it. But what really got us into it this time was some new technology. That's kind of how the door got opened. And that technology is 3D laser scanning, which it's actually a surveying tool, but it's a very accurate laser range finding device that spins around in 360 degrees and shoots basically bullets of light out from the instrument and then collects the return. So it's a range finding device, but it builds a real three-dimensional reality just in your computer and digital data. And that has become a revolutionary tool for any crime scene investigation, but particular shooting scenes starting in about 2005 or so. And I was lucky enough to be in on kind of the ground floor of developing that technology for forensic and crime scene use. But it was a colleague of mine who actually is very heavily involved in scanners named Tony Grissom uh, with the Leica company who has these devices, has these instruments, and we met at a conference. And he actually had the connections who were interested in having 3D laser scanning look at Dealey Plaza where Kennedy was assassinated again. And so that was the door. Uh, And then I called my dad and he got involved as well. And that led to many experiments that covered a wide range of topics with regard to the JFK assassination. But the neat thing about the Kennedy assassination is that much of the materials are available to look at online. Uh, Many of the actual physical evidence items, such as the bullets, the cartridge casings, the gun, uh, there's a lot known about them in the public domain. So there's a lot of easy access. But it was a neat investigation. It's been about five years now since we really worked on it, though. What is single bullet theory? Mm -hmm. The single bullet theory refers to the idea that one bullet, a single bullet, perforated both Kennedy's neck, which is the first shot that hit him, and also struck Governor Connolly and entered his back uh, and went through his upper body, through his chest, came out, struck and broke his wrist, and then also left a small wound and slightly indented Uh, itself in his left leg. So that single bullet theory is the idea that one bullet did all of that, which some uninitiated people, people that really don't actually shoot things for a living, uh, have a problem with. But when you look at the wound ballistics and the particular properties of the 6.5 Carcano bullet, it's a fairly unique bullet, actually, uh, that's easy. Uh, Bullets go through more than one person on a pretty regular basis. 
So that's what the single bullet theory is and physical evidence and empirical, meaning hands-on, actual shooting of things to, to check and see what happens. Testing of that nature indicates that the single bullet theory is a good theory. So how did you prove the single bullet theory? By empirical testing. Uh, and again, that refers back to the idea that you're actually going out and physically testing things. You're actually shooting things. You're not just doing a mind experiment and, and making hypotheses without doing data collection, which is a part of the scientific method. It's the idea that you're actually going out and collecting that data in order to see whether or not your hypothesis is correct or not. So how do we prove it? By actually going out and shooting things like ordnance gelatin and ordnance soap, which is a tissue simulant, to look and see what the behavior of this particular bullet, the 6.5 Carcano bullet, is when it goes through tissue. Because Kennedy's knuckle wound is only about five, six inches in uh, cross-section, in distance, and it only hit tissue. It didn't hit a bunch of bone. Uh, and then we look and see what the behavior is of the bullet when it emerges back out into the air after going through a neck. And indeed, what we find is it begins to go unstable. It's no longer pointing nose forward. It begins to tumble like most bullets do after they've struck something. And this is a great indicator of why the hole in Connolly's back is such an irregular, large hole. It's not like a stable bullet. So that right there, that little bit of practical hands-on testing that shows that, yes, these carcano bullets behave like most do, become unstable once they go through tissue, very much um, verifies the single bullet theory because Connolly's hole, again, in his back, the entry hole, is totally irregular. So something had to happen to the bullet that went through Connolly's torso before it got to Connolly, and that something is going through Kennedy's neck. So you shot bullets through soap and gelatin as part of your experiments. Mm -hmm. What did the soap and gelatin do once you shot through it? Mm. Well, you can kind of get an idea of what the wound would look like in a body. So it leaves you different things to look at. Gelatin is elastic, like tissue really is, whereas the soap, just like the soap you know, in your shower, it's less elastic. So it leaves a hole that you can actually look right through. But as far as what it tells you, it can tell you all sorts of things, such as how much does a bullet slow down when it goes through tissue, a certain amount of tissue. And it can then tell you what happens to the bullet after it emerges back into the air. So again, in this case, it shows that the bullets become unstable and begin tumbling end over end once they come back out of tissue. And what is it called when it tumbles end over end? Is there a word for that? Yeah, it goes into yaw. It becomes unstable. Uh, but tumbling is certainly the more sort of common word, if you will. And did the wound in Connolly's back look like, well what a bullet does when it goes into yaw? Big time. That's exactly right. So you actually can compare two things here. If you look at the hole going into Kennedy's jacket, in his back, in his upper back area, it's a nice round hole. It shows something called bullet wipe, which is sort of a ring of residues around the hole as the bullet goes in. This indicates the bullet is stable and nose first, but the hole in Connolly's back is irregular, it's large, and there's not bullet wipe. So you actually have a built-in experiment right there in the Kennedy assassination itself. So the Kennedy hole in the jacket and his neck is stable. The Connolly hole is unstable and irregular. 
have any evidence that there was a shooter on the grassy knoll? That's a fantastic question because evidence is the key here. My business is all about the evaluation of physical evidence, the pieces, the fragments, the guns, the cartridge casings that are left over after an incident. I base my opinions on those exact things you're asking about, physical evidence. If I wanted to throw a hypothesis out in the air that Martians zapped the president with a death ray and left no physical evidence, number one, that's not very scientific, but it doesn't require, that hypothesis does not require any physical evidence left over. Well, that's not reality. And that's the unfortunate part about many of the conspiracy theories is that they require no physical evidence or built into them as some sort of a caveat that negates physical evidence. So the truth of the matter is, if you look at all of the fragments that were recovered either from inside the limousine uh, or from Kennedy or from the stretcher, all of the physical evidence, the projectiles, every single piece of them is consistent with or identified by tool marks as having been fired from the Carcano rifle that was found in the school book depository where the shots came from on the sixth floor. They're out the window that faces down in Dealey Plaza. So your question is, you know, what physical evidence is there? We've got plenty. We've got fired cartridge casings up in what's been known as the sniper's nest where the boxes are in the window that faces Dealey. We've got the rifle in a stairwell in the opposite corner of the building where Oswald was seen coming out of. And then we have all these fired projectiles and fragments that either, again, by tool marks were identified as coming from that Carcano rifle or were identified as manufacturing-wise, in other words, the properties right out of the factory, as being 6.5 Carcano bullets, which, if you've seen them, they're kind of unique. They don't have a nice pointy nose. They're kind of a rounded nose bullet with a what's called a cantilever or a ring back towards the base. They're very unique. So all of these things, every bit of physical evidence that we have relating to guns from the shooting incidents are in agreement and consistent with shots fired by that Carcano rifle that struck both the president as well as Governor Connolly, as well as potentially a man down the street that very few people talk about named James Tague. Uh, he took a little fragment to the face, probably from the bullet that actually went through Kennedy's head. What do you think of the possibility that um, the shot fired from the grassy knoll, if there was one, missed? Well, if something missed and a shot was fired from the grassy knoll, uh, there's certainly no physical evidence to support that. There are no fragments from the head, from the limousine, or anywhere else that are something other than Carcano bullet fragments. Uh, There are no impacts reported across Dealey on the other side of the plaza where a miss would have gone. Uh, And another part of that is if you had a shot fired from the grassy knoll that did miss the president just in the slightest bit, then it may have or would have hit Mrs. Kennedy or a piece of the limousine. Now, if we open this hypothesis up and say, well, the bullet went over the top of his head, again, we're back to the point of there's no physical evidence to support that. And that's not how my science works. If there's no physical evidence to support it, we can't really refute it. We can't include it. Uh, The only additive part that I'd say to that from a non-forensic, non-science standpoint is having been in Dealey Plaza many times now, The idea of being behind that stockade fence up on the grassy knoll from a tactical standpoint is ridiculous. There's no cover. There's no concealment. You have a parking lot behind you uh, where tons of people are milling around. Um, It's a silly idea to me from that standpoint. So, Mike, 
If kids are interested in forensic science and want to learn more, do you have any advice? If you want to get into forensics and forensic science, there are many ways and many areas, everything from DNA analysis to what I do, gun stuff, to crime scene investigation and shooting incident reconstruction, but they all focus on the idea that we're doing impartial, unbiased analysis in a scientific manner. So stay into things like chemistry, physics, math, and then as soon as you can, start volunteering at crime labs. See if they have internships. Uh, go down, hang out, make some friends, learn about the actual place, because the more you can get your face recognized by the people that work there and show that you're enthused about that kind of work, even if you're not getting paid, that's what will help you get in the door. Thank you for being on the show. Hey, you bet, Nate. Thanks for interviewing me. There you have it, folks. The show about science is complete. Music on today's episode was produced by SoundsLikeAnearful.com, and our theme song was written by Jeff Dan and Teresa Brooks. Okay, Dad, you can shut the recording off. Hi, my name's Zach. I'm 12 years old, and I host We the Children, the podcast where kids talk climate change. Like a lot of kids my age, when I think about the future, I can't help but wonder what kind of world will be waiting for us. Will polar bears still roam the Arctic? Will we still be able to see colorful coral reefs or build snowmen in the winter? I'd like to think so. That's why I'm trying to learn as much as I can about climate change science, stories, and solutions from some of the world's leading experts and share what I learned with all of you. Together, we can decide what type of future we want for our planet. Subscribe to We the Children on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit us at wethechildrenpodcast.com. Remember, we, the children, have the power to make a difference.